Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, are trainer extraordinaire Bill Wagand, cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. Hey! And on the phone with us, participating remotely from Florida, is Radio Joe. Hello, Cliff. How are you, Joe? uh, Great, thanks. I'm at the Florida Intercounty IAQ Conference, and it's been uh, an interesting day. The ever-entertaining Joe Steebrook just finished, and uh, happy to be able to join us. Perfect. You can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz. Today is IAQ Media Day, where we will be interviewing others involved in IAQ Media. Today's guests include Megan Headley, editor of Mold and Moisture Management Magazine, and Jeff Cross, editor of Clean Facts Magazine. We'll also be talking with Steve Sauer for the IAQ Connections What's News sections. Thanks, Cliff. We'd like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions. Dry-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And, of course, Microband Systems, the microbial management company, microbandsystems.com. To contact the show live by phone or text message, simply go to talkshoe.com, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com, and follow the directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions and take requests if you email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And now I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Zach. Congratulations go out to Chad Seams, who quickly answered last week's trivia question, solving the riddle, which we were searching for the commonality between the word 
triskaidekaphobia and the Latin phrase ex luna scientia. Last week's show uh, was broadcast live on Friday the 13th. Triskaidekaphobia is actually the fear of the number 13 or the fear of Friday the 13th. And ex luna, ex luna scientia in English means the moon, we will learn, which was the motto for the Apollo 13 space mission. Zach, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, April 20th, 2007 is another riddle, the clues for which are the follows. As today is an IAQ media show and a publishing show, the question is, what is the connection between the word rosebud and a newspaper? Sweatshop coming through, so everybody move over. No, sir, don't worry at all. We're gonna break the mold and shake the whole game so surely they'll fall. So everybody move over. No, sir, don't worry at all. We're gonna break the mold and shake the whole game so surely they'll fall. Megan Headley has been with Key Communications, Inc. in Stafford, Virginia for three years and has served as editor of Mold and Moisture Management magazine since its inception in 2005. In addition to her work on Mold Mag, she's also worked as an assistant editor for several other key communications publications, including USG Glass, Shelter, Door and Window Manufacturer. Megan graduated from Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg, Virginia with a degree in English. Good morning or good afternoon, Megan. Hi, how are you? Perfect. Okay. What other magazines does your publishing company publish? We actually have about seven other magazines, and most of them are for the glass industry, architectural glass, automotive glass, and um, we've got one on building products. Cool. Megan, how did your magazine get started, and, and how many issues have been published so far? We actually got started through our um, shelter magazine, which goes out to distributors of building products, and we started getting a lot of feedback about mold problems. You know, lumberyards looking for answers to questions, window manufacturers trying to prevent condensation problems, things like that. And my publisher started doing research into mold problems and realized there really wasn't a single source of information on this. So we got started trying to look at uh, preventing mold problems from happening. Cool. And um, we launched our first issue in January 2005. Wow. And how often does it come out? Uh, right now it's six times a year, but we're planning for next year, and, you know, it's probably going to go up from there. There are many small business industry magazines. Do you, I guess your organization thinks that this is a sustainable business niche. Um, based on the response that we've gotten since we started, I definitely think there's going to be a demand for the magazine that's going to continue. I mean, we can hope that at some point buildings will have leaks, but, you know, that's going to be a while in coming. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, it's a very focused topic, but it's one that um, building professionals have a lot of questions about. Megan, who's the target market for your magazine? We actually have a pretty varied audience because we um, look at the prevention end of things, and the magazine goes out to architects, builders, contractors. Then it goes out to the mold and home inspectors, remediators, water damage restorers, and that whole gamut. So it's pretty much anybody who at some point in their career is going to be asked uh, you know, questions about mold problems. With, Im with improved building practices and materials, is the mold and moisture prevention market increasing or decreasing, and why? Um, well, I don't think it's decreasing. There are uh, still a lot of professionals out there with questions about how to keep out water and mold, 
And I, I think that awareness about the problems is growing, um, that there are things you can do to minimize water intrusion problems and, you know, keep your building occupants happy and healthy. And I think um, they're starting to learn, I guess, that this is a real problem with real solutions. Just from some of the shows I've been covering, I've been hearing a lot more about building products to prevent moisture intrusion problems. But also lately I've been hearing a lot more about the installation training being offered by the companies with those products. So it seems like awareness of you know, building practices is growing. Mm-hmm. Megan, besides the, the people you've just mentioned or the groups that mm-hmm. you've just mentioned, who's concerned about moisture control and, and mold prevention? Oh, gosh. Well, um, definitely the builders, the contractors, the architects, but um, we also have a number of homeowners who um, subscribe to the magazine and call in with questions. Um, we've got uh, folks um, in you know, litigation, insurance, and that kind of industry who are looking to um, you know, prevent the mold problems or at least learn more information about that. And I know a lot of the times um, folks who sign up for the magazine are usually, uh, you know, on the building end of things, it's usually someone who's had a problem in the past and are, look, you know, looking to take this more seriously and learn more about what they can do to prevent water intrusion problems. You know, your magazine has some standard sections that repeat uh, in each issue. Uh, if you could comment on the editorial comment and intent of these columns and departments, there's one called Spot on the Wall. There's another one called Consultant's Corner. There's another one called Industry Interface. There's another one of interest to us called Water Workshop. Uh, there's one called Wet Science, and there's one called Dry Eye. Could you just touch a bit on those? Sure. Um, well, the spot on the wall, that's my column, sort of my opportunity to share my thoughts. And then I aim to keep kind of conversational and just encourage our readers to um, write in, share their thoughts and their knowledge, and you know, promote conversation among the different tradespeople. Um, the consultants corner, we've got two terrific consultants who contribute their knowledge of building science and codes to each issue. Um, Colin Murphy with Trinity ERD and Lonnie Houghton with Richard Avalar and Associates. Mm-hmm. And they sort of have free reign to address topics that they see come up from their clients. Um, with the industry interface, we've got some experts with the American Architectural Manufacturers Association. And they share information about how they test products that need to be leak-proof, you know, doors, windows, sunroofs. Um, things like that, and information on industry-related testing and codes. From time to time, we run the water workshop column, where we usually have a manufacturer or a consultant um, offer general installation or construction tips for a particular building feature. Um, in the wet science department, we uh, usually look at the latest studies on mold. That's where we touch on things like questions about health effects and um, things of that nature, where we review research presented at trade shows. And then in the dry eye section, that's something we try to keep, you know, kind of light and fun for the back page, but it sort of gives us a look at what the consumers, our readers' customers, are learning about mold. We've looked at uh, advice columns and the questions readers ask experts in their local newspapers about mold. We've addressed some of the ways mold has disrupted businesses. And I know lately I've been noticing a lot of interviews with water damage restorers and mold remediators appearing in uh, the consumer press, which is kind of interesting. It seems like the media is working to kind of lessen the alarm that consumers might feel about hiring these professionals who've sort of gotten a bad rap in the consumer press anyway. So that's something we've been looking at as well. Well, Megan, from uh, someone who travels a lot and has a mold sensitivity, why are hotel rooms susceptible to mold? Well, that's actually something we just uh, readdressed in our May-June issue, which is coming out pretty much any minute now. Um, And one of the things that people have been telling me I guess part of the problem is that there's been a big boom in non-residential construction, and hotel construction is just right there at the top of the list. 
So basically, if a designer isn't thinking about ways to prevent water intrusion in hotels, and there's some type of flaw in the design, that's being replicated, you know, probably in each room across the country at a very rapid pace. By the time they catch that flaw, you know, it's it's spread. And I talked to a couple of different people for this last article, and one of the things I've heard a lot about is um, problems with HVAC systems as far as the design phase, um, things such as uh, instances where hotels or motels are put under negative pressure and a lot of the hot Cuba air is drawn through wall assemblies because of problems with the, the way the HVAC systems are integrated into the buildings. That's one of the things I've been hearing a lot about, and it's kind of something we're hoping to revisit in the future. It's one of the neat things I like about having a varied audience. We can talk with the folks who deal with these problems from a lot of different angles. Speaking of which, Joe, how is your hotel room? <laughs> Actually, it was pretty good. Um, they didn't have any vinyl wallpaper, which was nice, a nice change of pace, <laughs> which uh, actually ties into what some of the uh, presentations that occurred here at the uh, Intercounty Conference. This is a bunch of uh, municipal employees that are getting together and also some consultants and contractors uh, for this conference. And I had a question for Megan. One of the first topics that came up was from the Lee County Facilities Management Director, Mr. Rich Beck, a former guest of ours. He had just come back from a facilities management show where he said that indoor environmental quality seems to have now taken a back seat to the green building, um, the green building, I don't know what you would call it, phenomenon where people were more concerned about building these green buildings and he was concerned that we would lose sight of indoor environmental quality when we start putting these green buildings together and then the speaker came on later joe steebrook and uh he was very uh concerned about that same issue do you have any plans on writing about that or have you written about that issue yeah that's actually something i'm hoping to look at, at in the next couple of issues the green building and it's definitely a trend we've seen in all of our magazines and um, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about as far as, like, the LEED certification program that the U.S. Green Building Council offers, the part of their plan for keeping uh, constructing green buildings, they have an indoor air quality aspect that um, designers and builders have to meet, and that includes things like thermal comfort and ventilation. And so it seems like the indoor air quality, having good air, indoor air quality is part of having a green building. It seems like maybe it's something that can be integrated into that trend. That seemed to be the opinion here that mm-hmm. really it needed to be addressed up front, not just right. with respect to comfort and relative humidity, but also that by changing the materials we're using, we're also possibly decreasing the durability and increasing the potential for other issues like UV light, um, heat, and moisture causing problems that were unintended because of the change to these green products. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, that's definitely something we're hoping to address because it, it, it is a big part of the green building um, process, and that's something that, um, you know, again, the U.S. Green Building Council and other organizations like that are going to have to address how to change practices to make sure that um, they're keeping the moisture problems to a minimum as well. How are architects dealing with growing concerns about preventing moisture intrusion? Well, uh, it's interesting. A lot of times when I go to um, the shows and talk with the architects, um, I hear a lot of people talking about the mold trend and how it's winding down, which is kind of discouraging. 
But um, I've been talking uh, with, for the issue we just did, I talked with a couple of architects who were talking about some of the things that they do to keep their designs dry, things like um, bringing in third-party consultants and doing peer reviews of their designs. Um, I've got a talk to a couple of folks who are focused on writing quality control reports and having their subcontra- subcontractors write quality control reports to make sure they're following the design and um, um, moisture intrusion prevention practices. Um, architecture firm I recently spoke with is testing mock-ups of their designs before installing them anytime they have a question or think there might be a problem down the road. And a couple others are really focused on working with manufacturers to ensure that installation practices are followed correctly. And I know that the American or the Architects Institute of America rather has some good resources on mold, and they offer a class for continuing education units. So they're they're aware of the problems. It just needs it seems to be a little more education on how big a role design plays in preventing these problems. Megan, could you comment on I guess what we could call the mold blame game, the lumberyards versus the contractors? Yeah, that that was an article we ran in our January issue. And actually, our editor of Shelter Magazine uh, worked on that one, and she's got a tremendous resource of distributors and lumber yards. And she looked at the topic of how lumber dealers, builders, and framing contractors deal with moldy lumber. And we heard a lot from builders that, you know, in many instances, the lumber was delivered to the site with mold already on it. And at the same time, the lumber yards are commenting that even if the lumber is delivered in conditioned containers, it's still going to get exposed to the elements on a job site. It's still going to end up with mold problems. But they both had some tips for preventing mold growth on lumber, and that's more what we were trying to focus on um, in the article. And in addition, Shelter has been getting some feedback from its readers about possibly putting together a task force to create some guidelines for the supply chain about how to prevent these problems. So we're working on, I guess, getting rid of the blame um, and just finding a way to that lumberyards and contractors can just minimize these problems altogether. It's a follow-up question. You mentioned that there were some tips in, uh, put in your magazine. I just wondered if you could mention one or two of them. If you Yeah, um, a lot of them were simple things like um, elevating the lumber, so you know, just keeping it sitting on the damp ground, covering with tarps. Um, some lumber yards and builders are starting to use preventive coatings and things like that, and just a lot of the builders say put up the roofs as quick as you, po- as you possibly can and store the lumber in the meantime. So a lot of them are suggesting things along those lines. Uh, which issue was that, Megan, that the article was in about uh, the supply chain with the lumber? It was our January-February 2007 issue. And what would happen if a listener listened and wanted to get a hold of that? Are these still available for purchase, or can they be obtained? Yeah, um, they can be purchased. We actually have an online archive that um, anyone can check out it's at our website, moldmag.com, and um, there's a subscription fee, but all of the information is there and easily accessible. Sounds like a great resource. Megan, could you comment on the mold on, in the nation's schools? Um, sure. Well, uh, when we did an article on this, I guess, in our November-December issue last year, and um, I was really impressed with the fact that a lot of the school districts out there do have plans in place for handling mold problems. And I talked with a couple of environmental specialists who work for these school districts who've been trained to deal with mold and moisture problems, and a lot of them said that one of the big problems they face is um, maintenance issues, um, that a lot of the problems can be controlled through preventative maintenance, but that with um, budget cuts, it's sometimes it's hard to get the training that's needed. Um, and I was at a meeting for the American Federation of Teachers, um, and they were also, again, talking about maintenance budgets being among the first to be cut and um, pushing for increased training and education about mold awareness among maintenance staff to keep, out, keep a lot of these problems to a minimum. 
But then um, we also hear a lot about new schools having pretty significant mold problems, sometimes even before the schools open their doors. And something else I've been hearing is that a lot of the construction related to schools is usually low bid, and sometimes it can even be the poor construction work leading to these problems. Um, but uh, for the most part, it seems like the big word is um, budgeting. And I know that the American Federation of Teachers, um, they're working to push legislation now that will provide, I think it's $25 billion to school districts um, to help with repairs uh, for existing buildings and building new buildings. But it sounds like that's just a drop in the bucket for what they're aiming for. <laughs> Uh, one suggestion to schools, uh, particularly in the eastern area, is why do you clean your carpet in August, getting ready for school in September, and then turn off the air handling system? Uh, Good point. Uh, we've seen it. What? Why do you have a separate uh, remediation section in, in your uh, magazine? Well, we really started the magazine based on what we'd learned about the need to prevent mold, and it was really aiming at the building professionals. And I know at a lot of the conferences I attend, um, they really stress the importance of building science, and even for the remediation professionals. It kind of seems like, you know, the remediation folks really need to know as much about, as the building professionals, about proper construction, insulation techniques, dry designs, things like that. And they're able to offer, excuse me, a lot of um, input to the builders and architects about the problems they see occurring. So it seems like there's a lot of overlap in that area. So we offer the focused remediation section. Um, so they're able to, if, if there's something they want to learn about specifically, they can turn straight to that section. But it also sort of draws remediators into the magazine to learn more about the construction end of things. Uh, what trends are you hearing about in mold remediation? You know, actually one of the big things I've been hearing um, was what you've already mentioned um, as far as the green building. Um, that's definitely something we're going to be looking at. Um, and in addition to you know, just constructing to prevent um, moisture intrusion problems, things like using environmentally friendly chemicals and products, you know, instead of, as you're trying to get um, rid of these materials that are harmful to, to the inhabitants, you're putting in other chemicals that might be just as harmful, things like that. So that's something I'm hoping to do a little more research into. Where do you get most of your information on these issues? From our readers, pretty much for the most part. I try to monitor what's going on in the industry and talk to folks, but for the most part, um, I receive a lot of input from talking to people at trade shows. Um, when I do an interview on one topic, I try to get a sense of what other topics they want to address, and they're really my biggest resource. What articles have you had the most feedback on in the article, you know, Good, Bad, or Indifferent, in the magazine? Sure. Um, you know, it, it varies. We got a lot of feedback. Um, we're actually printing another letter to letter from one of our readers in our next issue about the um, the lumber article and that's got um, it's kind of interesting because we've got some comments from builders as well as from remediators and so that's something we've been getting a lot of feedback on um, it, I'm always surprised I get a lot of feedback on my column which is kind of fun um, but basically I guess that's a place where I make a lot of requests and lately we've had a lot of readers sending in photos um, I sent out a request for that and so it, it's great to know um, that folks who don't want to write for the magazine or send in the press releases still really want to be a part of the magazine and contribute something. and That's kind of exciting. What are the, some of the topics that you might be looking for in the, in the future that the readers have asked you to address? One of the things I've been hearing about lately is um, addressing sort of the real estate industry and home inspectors. And I've been hearing some general comments that uh, these professionals might be over-diversifying a bit and taking on mold inspection in addition to everything else they're expected to address. So I was kind of hoping to learn a little bit more as far as, you know, 
the type of education that the real estate agents and the home inspectors get on mold. What's the subscription? Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, what's the subscription cost for your publication? Oh, it's actually free for anybody in the industry. Um, well, then how can listeners get information on subscribing to the magazine? I'll let you do your little commercial right now. How do they get, <laughs> how do they get you? Sure. Well, the best place to go is to the website, um, moldmag.com. Um, it takes just about five seconds to fill out the form and get all the information you need. Or if anybody has any questions, they can definitely contact me. How, how, could, um, how could our oh, listeners contact you? Sure. Um, email, um, that's probably the easiest way, and I'm mheadley at moldmag.com. You can also get that information on the website. Or they can give me a call at 540-720-5584. Joe, do you have anything that you want to add to the interview? I was just curious about uh, the – you were talking about some future issues, and one of them being the home inspectors and how they're getting more involved with um, – mold, I guess, but also moisture. My understanding is they're also getting more involved with things like radon and um, even doing little mini phase one assessments of the surrounding area. Do you plan on talking to them about that as well? That's a good point. Um, that's definitely something, um, just getting started on research on that and kind of trying to feel out from the folks I'm talking to about that, but that's definitely something I can look into addressing. Yeah, they're doing radon now. They're they're doing these moisture and mold uh, as a part of you know a separate part of their uh, their investigation. They're also doing some allergen screening. So what what I'm seeing anyway is home inspectors trying to do, and I think the key word is screening, uh, as opposed to doing a full investigation for these issues. They're screening homes to see if there may be an allergen problem or a radon problem or a motor moisture problem or even a problem with surrounding use. In other words, it's down the street from a sewage a treatment plant, etc. So that may be an angle you'd like to take with that future issue. Okay. I might have to call you up for that. <laughs> be Maybe. happy to talk to you. That's one thing about Joe. He's he's full of good ideas. <laughs> Megan, is there, is there anything you'd like to add to the interview that you feel that we might have missed? Um, I guess just I'm always kind of stressed that I really you know depend on the information and input from our readers and I guess listeners in this case about topics they want addressed. And also, if I can just add to my mini commercial there, um, we're sort of in the process of updating our website um, to offer another forum for information and for our readers, and we'll be launching an e-newsletter pretty soon here. Megan, if you wouldn't mind, can you just mm -hmm. hang on for a little bit while we do a couple uh, Jeff's interview and join us at the end for a roundtable? Sure, no problem. Thank you very much. You got a kitten up a tree, welcome to me, and I'll see it makes it on the front page. The mayor's mother broke a toe, they gotta know, stop the press, it's the mass, it's a scandal of the age, hell, it's big news, another shock to rock. Hey Steve, welcome for your IE Connections big news section. Hey, cool. Thank you. I'm working on my uh, singing rendition of that song you just played. Okay. <laughs> well, the, uh, well, we have a May issue that uh, should be going to press in about a week, but uh, I'll give you a little bit of story behind uh, what we decided would be in it. 
our April issue has a lot of stuff in it about uh, mold, the subject that you were just talking about. On the front page, mold at uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center. We talk about mold sampling results from labs, an update on mold legislation, and an industry standard on mold. So when I came to book in one of our editorial advisory board members to write us a piece in the May issue, the only instructions handed down to me by the newspaper publisher was, let's avoid mold. We certainly don't want to step on Megan Headley's toes. So it uh, turns out that the person I approached to write us an editorial for the May issue was fine with that, uh, David Krauss, who's a Ph.D. who's been working in industrial hygiene since 1990, said he thinks that uh, not only is the media attention to mold a little overblown, but also there are indoor environmental consultants whose eyes are so focused on mold only that they're blinded to the multitude of, of other indoor contaminants. So David gives a specific example where a teenager has a brush with death um, due to misdiagnosis by medical doctors and environmental assessors. He was treated for allergies because of mold damage from a roof leak. His bouts of sleepiness and headaches were dismissed as depression, and he went on pharmaceutical treatment. It was just sheer luck, though, that he ended it, that he was eventually taken to an emergency room where they tested him for carbon monoxide poisoning. And it turned out that the roofers repairing the leaky roof had blocked the exhaust flue of the natural gas water heater that resided in the kid's bedroom, which was a converted garage. So missing that important clue, says David, almost cost this kid his life, even though they found and remedied the mold. So his editorial suggests ways that the IAQ industry can broaden its approach uh, without, you know, losing sight of mold, but, you know, just opening eyes to other things, too. What else you got? Um, well, in the May issue, we'll learn about a legislative attempt to make Maryland the second state to regulate the ozone emissions uh, of indoor air cleaning devices. And um, we have an interesting interview with an IAQ consultant up in Canada who's a professor, does some university-level classes on uh, building science, and uh, she's got some confessions to make. Okay. <laughs> now, that's not a tease. And it's a female, so that could be very interesting. Yeah. You'll like that one, Cliff. What else? Um, well, it's uh, about a week from going to press, and uh, I've got a bunch of things. I'm a little bit behind deadline and everything, so I don't know. We'll we'll see what other good stuff gets in there. All right. Well, thank you for your update, and we appreciate the big news. Thank you. I think Zach may have some news. Oh, yes. I have some big news indeed. This week, I am pleased to introduce that IAQ Radio finally has a website. You can find us online at iaqradio.com. This website is meant to be a portal to IAQ Radio and provides much more than just the ability to download past episodes and, and subscribe to our podcast. Our new website is going to be a portal of information and news in the industry, as well as provide interactive user-to-user -user forms. Guests to our website will be able to provide commentary on each of our current and past episodes. If you have an RSS reader, you will be able to subscribe to our posting feed and have fresh content delivered directly to your computer daily without the need for a web browser. All the resources that you would need to listen to IEQ Radio, contact the show, or to find out more about the IEQ industry, you will be able to find it at IEQRadio.com. Back to you, Bill. Thanks, Zach. Uh, once again, we'd like to thank today's sponsors, the Indoor Environment Connections. Uh, throw a little information there for Steve. 
and they can uh, give you some information at ieconnections.com, Drye's products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Drye's is first in drying solutions at dry-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company, microbandsystems.com. Thanks, Zach. Jeff Cross is uh, our next guest, and uh, Jeff is the senior editor of Clean Facts Magazine and Clean Pros Online. He's a veteran of the carpet and furniture cleaning industry and former owner of a very successful carpet and furniture cleaning and disaster restoration firm. His background also includes newspaper reporting, magazine editing and photography, darkroom technician work, and as an IICRC certified master textile cleaner and an approved instructor, Jeff teaches carpet cleaning, upholstery cleaning, color repair, and advanced spot and stain removal seminars across the country. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Jeff? Thanks, guys. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm here now. Okay, that's good. We just wanted to be sure you were there. When did your magazine premiere, Jeff? Well, about 20 years ago, 1986, so it's, it's been out there a while. Jeff, what's your magazine circulation, and, um, and what is verified circulation? How is it done? Well, we have 25,000 qualified subscribers, and it's all verified, which means uh, that in order to receive Clean Facts magazine, an individual must qualify. They either have to be a carpet cleaner, a restoration contractor, or a building service contractor. And by 100% requested, that means that each subscriber has somehow asked for the magazine, either through a subcard or through the website. And unlike a lot of companies, we want to have this, want to be audited, so we have BPA Worldwide come in and verify that uh, these ones have asked to receive the magazine. So they come into the office, look at our subscription cards, look for information to prove that the magazine was requested. You know, the magazine's called Clean Facts. Uh, what type of services are provided by your readers? Well, our readers do a lot of things. Uh, they're... They're small business owners for the most part, presidents and managers and technicians. Uh, mainly they're carpet and furniture cleaners, on location, residential. Uh, that's the bulk of it. A lot of them do disaster restoration work. Uh, we do have some who subscribe who do commercial carpet cleaning, commercial cleaning in general. So you might say it covers an entire gamut of cleaning, but mainly it's your salt-of-the-earth carpet and upholstery cleaner. Jeff, how, approximately how many Canadian or international subscribers do you have? And is the cleaning done the same in Canada and internationally as it is in the U.S., or are there notable differences? Well, we have uh, over 400 subscribers outside of the United States. Obviously, most are in this country, uh, mainly due to postal costs to receive the magazine. So our international presence is carried more by our electronic media. Uh, we don't have an exact number, but we have thousands of readers outside the U.S. who receive our information. Our magazine is on the Internet, and we're able to send uh, information to 
different ones outside the U.S. when it is posted online. As far as cleaning, um, I would say it's done the same way about everywhere. I, I go on to the bulletin boards in England and other places, and everyone has pretty much the same concerns. Cleaning's done the same way. Obviously, there's a few differences, especially when you get into other countries that uh, don't have some of the equipment that we have available. But for the most part, uh, carpet cleaning, upholstery cleaning, restoration work is the same just about everywhere. You know, I don't want people to know how old I am, but I was an original subscriber for your magazine and have every issue since it first came out in 86. What percentage of your original subscribers who started with you do you think have diversified into disaster restoration, Jeff? It's hard to say. Uh, we ask questions in our reader surveys and um, the subscription cards that we have out there. We try to have them indicate to us what they do, but it looks like we have more than 3,500 that indicate that restoration is their primary business. And on top of that, another 70% or so do, do some form of restoration. As most know, when you're a carpet cleaner and you have a customer base, if you're called to do a, a water damage for one of your customers, it's hard to say no. So uh, most carpet cleaners do some form of restoration. Uh, the amount that do it full-time is much less. But um, as far as the entire subscriber base, I would say that most do some form of restoration. Jeff, Clean Facts Magazine is known for several columns, the Great Debate and the Restores column. Can you explain to our listeners what's covered in those columns? Sure. Uh, we like to have several columns each month just to get some continuity and people can look forward to certain topics. And obviously we have other articles too, but the ones you mentioned, like the Great Debate, uh, obviously people like to argue and there are a lot of topics out there where uh, we want to put both sides of the issue out. So we'll come up with a, a topic, we'll assign two people to debate it, and we'll let them put their own thoughts on paper and we'll print it. Um, Restores Corner, obviously restoration is huge these days, and we want to make sure that there's some good information on how to take care of a process. It could be an issue that the restoration industry has. It could be a question on how to clean or how to remediate. Um, so, you know, it's important to get good information into the hands of the cleaners. The magazine is all about helping our readers, and so we want to concentrate on all the topics that can do that. So I'd say Clean Facts has a variety of columns and departments, and we provide a balance of application as well as how to market and manage your business. Jeff, how does your editorial staff differ from the editorial staff of other industry publications? Well, I can't speak for everyone else, but I, my experience I would say for the most part. I've been a carpet and furniture cleaner myself. I've been out there making all the mistakes that are possible. I've experienced a pressure hose breaking in a living room with white carpet, making a big black gooey mess. Uh, some of you guys might understand what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. uh, I've dragged hoses through snow banks in the winter, wondering why in the world I had customers that wanted to have carpet cleaned that day. Uh, I've had good business and bad business, so I would say that my experience reflects the editorial because I know that the cleaners need good down-to-earth information to be successful. Jeff, I've heard on multiple occasions that a competitive publication to Clean Facts, ICS Magazine, is actually the official magazine of the IICRC. Could you comment on that? Well, I think uh, that perception comes about because so many individuals in the upper levels of management and leadership of the IICRC write for ICS Magazine. We instead want to take a grassroots approach. We want to write what needs to be written about, and we use columnists in the field that are involved in the industry on a more reader level. So we don't really want to partner with any organization. 
but we want to work with them. And we use our advisory board when needed, and we go to the readers for ideas, uh, something Megan mentioned earlier. When I'm out teaching, when I have a chance to visit with cleaners at trade shows, I'm always hearing of good ideas, and I'll take those and then assign those out to qualified ones to write about those. We also want to make sure that the associations have a say in the industry. So we have a two-page spread called Regional Roundup, exclusively for the various trade associations that are owners of the IICRC. So it's kind of like their open forum. They can talk about their upcoming events. They can talk about what concerns them. And I, I let them have the say that they want. So with these influences, directing the editorial, we feel that we provide a complete look at the industry instead of partnering with an individual association or group. How does CleanFacts differentiate itself from competitive publications? Well, I think we've covered this a bit, just the fact that we really go to the reader to get our information. And uh, sometimes we'll print controversial topics. Uh, we've had recent articles um, on restoration and different points where it might not be quite what's in the manuals in the training classes we see out there. So we might publish information that might be considered sensitive, but our goal is to have our readers think about things. We don't want to just funnel them information that is already there at all times. We want to help them to think and maybe step outside the box and also keep them informed of both sides of an issue. So you will see things printed, especially in our letter section, that some might have hurt feelings and feel it's unfair, but it's information the industry needs. We have a comment from a listener. Hell, I like you. Okay. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yes. Okay, all right. I just, uh, Sergeant Hartman just likes you. Hell, I like you. <laughs> uh, can you comment on comments. Can you comment on Clean Facts's participation in Connection trade show events? Well, we've always supported Connections. We're there, we have a booth, but we never want to miss being part of it. It's a, it's a good show. And we've become a media partnership with Connections to help them to improve the participation in the industry uh, with trade show goals that are met by both exhibitors and attendees. So we'll always be there, and you'll see that we're helping to promote the event. Jeff, what's the most exciting professional thing that's occurred to you during your tenure there at the Clean Facts magazine? Well, a lot of th exciting things have happened. Uh, just being part of the process, t getting the position at Clean Facts was a privilege. But I'd say as far as uh, exciting things, once I landed the editorship of Clean Facts, I was able to get into teaching, carpet cleaning, upholstery cleaning, and uh, various subjects. And that's exciting to me. I'm able to not only have help cleaners do their work with the magazine, but I'm able to interact with them in the classroom. And that's really an exciting thing. And I, I think several of you have done the same thing. Another exciting thing, if I could say, was we were purchased by Grandview Media last year a huge company that's given us nice resources to do some things that we weren't able to do in the past. So because of that, you'll see continued improvement in the magazine, and we're happy because of that. Yeah, does the founder, former editor, and former publisher of Clean Facts, John Downey, periodically give you any advice? Well, you know, John, it doesn't matter if I want or need advice. He's gonna <laughs> give it. I don't know if he's listening. Uh, uh, he might be. Yes, <laughs> we do communicate, and in fact, he's helping out with a big project this year. Uh, one that's probably dear to your heart, Cliff. He's leading the committee on choosing the person of the year. Oh, wow. So cool. you were, that was an honor you had a couple of years ago. Absolutely. But it's an important one, and it's something that uh, I wanted John to be involved in. But we do visit from time to time. We see each other at trade shows, and we sit down and talk. And I'd like to think he's happy with the direction I've taken, 
And if I, he's not happy, I'll, I'll tell you he does tell me that. <laughs> oh, if not, you'll hear about it next week because he's going to be one of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to listen to Okay. <laughs> I have a two-part question. Could you comment on how the uh, community and electronic communications are, are affecting the industry? And can you tell us about Clean Facts' online bulletin board? Sure. Um, the bulletin board is important. It's the longest-running bulletin board in the industry. You'll see a handful of participants when you consider the size of the industry, but thousands of lurkers that just peek and want knowledge. As far as electronic communications, I think we all know that, just like this radio show right now, it's, it's really expanding the way that cleaners and restorers get their information. We have our website, cleanfacts.com, and interestingly, it receives about 26,000 unique user visits each month. That's a lot of cleaners coming on to look at information on the website. And in 2006, we had 1.4 million user visits on our website. Uh, we also have an e-news program that goes out called CM e-news daily that reaches more than 20,000 cleaners and restorers each day. So that's huge for us. And I have my training website called Clean Pros Online, which gets more than 30,000 cleaners each week. So I'd say that just from our company's perspective, we need the magazine to be out there. We know that people like to read the printed materials. So that's always going to be there. But the electronic media is going to continue to increase. Webinars, um, interviews like this, these are all things that can help the industry. And, and we're trying to always make sure that we're part of this process. What are the hot topics? Uh, what's the word out there on the street? What, what, what issues are your readers talking about? Well, lots of issues. Probably the biggest one right now is the Carpenter Rug Institute testing for equipment and products, chemicals. Now, that's an issue that's evolving, still in the works, and we're seeing changes to that each day. As far as topics that cleaners want and they talk about, I'd say that marketing is at the top of the list. We know that anyone can push a wand, but it takes a special skill to market a company and to gain customers and manage it, manage that company. So those are the hot topics. They also want to know the basics on how to clean. They want to know the products that are available. Uh, manufacturers want to get that information to the readers, and the readers want to know what's out there. Not that they'll buy everything in the magazine that's advertised, but they need to know what's available. So it's hard to say that there's one big topic, but uh, those are some of the top issues. You know, Jeff, you've mentioned the CRI. Uh, I've got a three-part question for you um, regarding CRI's cleaning methods and product testing. First of all, what's, what's the goal of CRI's cleaning methods and product testing program? Does the testing further or detract from its stated goal? And is there any impact on the industry? Well, the goal, I would say, is what they state, to protect the consumer. They want to do their best to make sure that the equipment and chemicals used on residential warranted carpets is the best. So I can understand that. Now, the process to get there can be difficult. We know that their consumer is the bread and butter, but it's the carpet cleaner who's going to be uh, taking care of the uh, textiles in question. So the testing of products and chemicals is going to provide good information, uh, but so far, you see a lot of consumer products tested, and we're not going to really see professional cleaners using these products. So I'd say that as time goes on and more companies and manufacturers put products in for testing, you'll see a better program. As far as impact, it may raise costs to manufacturers. Uh, it is expensive to have products tested, and that's going to have to float down to the cleaner, and that's going to have to float down to the consumer. So it's not a good thing, but it's what we have. It's kind of like gasoline prices. As they go up, our costs go up, and the consumer is going to have to pay more. 
we do see, too, that as you look at the bulletin boards, many are complaining about the testing methods, that it's not real-life testing. And some comments, for instance, the soil used in testing is said to have no oily soil, that it's not real-life. So I can see concerns the cleaners have, and that's why we want to address them and make sure everyone has both sides of the issue. But the CRI is working on it. They're, they're working on the process. So what we can do is either get involved or just wait out and see what happens. Yeah, Jeff, ads for new, more, more sophisticated and, and probably more expensive cleaning equipment are commonly found in your magazine and, and other magazines. In your opinion, is equipment the most important factor in getting carpet clean? I would say absolutely not. We know that you could take a great machine and put it in the hands of an inexperienced or bad technician, and you're going to have a bad cleaning unless he gets lucky. Uh, an experienced cleaner, on the other hand, can go to Walmart and get a rental machine and out-clean an inexperienced cleaner. So we know that as professional cleaners, we want the best tools. They're going to help us do the best job. So you need a combination, and that's where education comes in. If you educate a cleaner, if he has good training, whether it's in the classroom or on the job or both, He's going to be able to take that knowledge and use whatever tool or equipment or chemical is at his disposal. And obviously, the better tools, the better equipment, and the better chemicals, that's going to make his job easier and faster. And we want to get the job done as fast as possible, but without breaking the integrity of the cleaning job. You know, would you agree that carpet cleaners typically clean with very, very dilute cleaning solutions and only leave trace levels of these products on the fibers after cleaning. Are professional cleaners really interested in green cleaning, and if so, why? Well, I would agree that um, they use very dilute cleaning solutions, but there's no such thing as leaving no cleaning residue. I know that some advertise no residue, but if you clean with just water, that might be true. And then what are you leaving behind? Probably some dirt, which isn't acceptable. So if you're using detergent in your, in your solution, there is no way to rinse all of that out in the final process. But as far as green cleaning, I'd say our readers are somewhat concerned, uh, but in reality it all comes down to providing what the customer wants. You have to realize that CleanFax readers are commercial, or commercial carpet cleaners and residential carpet cleaners with the emphasis on residential. And some customers of theirs are concerned about green chemicals, um, but we know that green is not just a chemical, it's a process. So getting a carpet, a piece of upholstery, clean and getting it dry is important. Removing mold from a structure, getting rid of what shouldn't be there, and bringing it back to its original condition, that's the goal. So it's a process, it's a concept of doing what is best for the health and safety of others and still remove contamination. If you clean green and don't get rid of the dirt, what's the point of being there? So I say they're concerned, but they're not as concerned with the chemicals and the tools to do the green cleaning, but they're more concerned with the entire process. Jeff, in 1993, Dr. Michael Berry introduced the concept of cleaning for health. I have a three-part question. Uh, what does the concept of cleaning for health really mean? How did cleaners clean before the concept of cleaning for health was introduced? And how do professional cleaners clean differently today than they did in the past? Well, cleaning for health is a good concept. It's, I would compare it somewhat to green cleaning. Instead of cleaning for appearance, you think deeper. Uh, most cleaners, when they first start in business, without looking at the industry issues, they, they clean for appearance. They go into the job, they precondition, they, uh, they clean, and how it looks is what matters to them. But cleaners today are they're still doing this. They have to clean for appearance, 
but with more slant to decontamination and healthier environments. So even though Clean Facts magazine may vary from the indoor air quality uh, publications out there, I would say that the goal is the same, to clean for health, get, get rid of the soil, the contamination. And as far as cleaners, how they clean today, I think they just, they're better educated and so they do a more thorough cleaning. And that's important, you know, using the right chemicals for the soils out there, getting it as clean as possible, and also educating the customer, letting them know uh, why clean is important, not just for appearance reasons. Jeff, since your editorship at Clean Facts, what article in the magazine has had the greatest reaction from your readers, good, bad, or indifferent? Well, I'd say that um, I'd say that the great debate has had a big influence on some topics. A lot of cleaners have questions. And so when we put out a debate and we let two people um, talk about it, and then online we have a uh, user forum where the readers can put in their own thoughts, it's a great way to see every aspect of a topic and to make your own decision based on that knowledge. Uh, so that's, that's a, huge, a huge bonus for our readers. Uh, our marketing articles are very popular. People, their, their biggest concern when I, when I ask in my training classes, what are some problems you have? What keeps you up at night? It's getting business and, and getting new customers and keeping your customers, all about marketing. So I'd say that um, any type of marketing article is going to be read heavily, and any type of controversial article, they're going to appreciate that too because it lets them really think. And that's why our letter section is popular. It's, it's opinion that goes into the magazine, and, and instead of a uh, uh, middle-of-the-road approach to editorial content. Jeff, this is uh, Joe. I, I wanted to make a comment and then ask a question. Okay. The um, e-news you mentioned, uh, that has been a tremendous resource for me. I, I come into this industry from a different background, the industrial hygiene area, and Every course I do, I, I refer people to that um, daily e-news, and it's such a nice, easy way to, you know, look at some quick topics and then decide, you know, do I need to know a little bit more about this topic, and it leads them in the right direction. So I just wanted to compliment you on that. Um, the second thing I wanted to do was ask a question about the debate series. What uh, Can you give us an example of a few of these debate questions and then, do you have a method for determining who won the debate? Well, uh, I would say that some, the, probably the top one that comes up to mind is we had a debate, I think it was the spring of 2005, uh, on IICRC certification. Is it, is it important? Is it valuable for your business? And that one probably had the most readership. So uh, that was, that was a, top, a top one. We have methods of debates. Is encapsulation uh, a good system? But as far as determining the, um, the response, we do have a voting system on the website. So I can't think of the numbers exactly, but the one on the IICRC, um, that definitely had thousands of votes and a huge readership following. So we let the readers vote. We let them post their comments. And the ultimate goal, of course, is not to prove someone's right or wrong, but to get the information out to the readers so that they can make their own decision. You know, without the information that is provided, whether it's Clean Facts or another publication, our readers are kind of stumped as to what to think. You know, you think back 20, 25 years ago, before the Internet got popular and the media that we see now, a cleaner was pretty much isolated unless you went to a trade show. And today, that's not the case. 
Jeff. Now you've got my curiosity up here, Jeff. How how did the numbers come out on the um, IICRC certification question? Yeah, I should have looked that up before I got on the phone. Uh, I'm, think, I'm thinking I'm thinking it was pretty close, but I think that the IICRC certification being valuable one. Don't quote me on that. I can look it up and get that to you later. <laughs> but it, it was close. That's, 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 uh, that's yeah. interesting. Obviously, your average cleaner sees value in training. And even though the IICRC is just one of the avenues of getting that, it's still training. And certification is optional, of course, when you take a class. So the most important thing is rubbing shoulders with other cleaners, uh, getting involved, and learning. That's, that's the most benefit there is. Well, thanks for that. That I couldn't uh, agree more with your comment on just getting the training, not necessarily worrying about the certification so much as getting education and mixing and, and meeting. Right. Well, well, Jeff, it's thanks. For, okay, go ahead. Jeff, thanks very much. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add, anything we might have missed or, or you'd like to discuss further? No, I think that covers it. You know, we'll, we want to listen to our readers. If anyone has a comment, we, we listen to them. And um, letters to the editor are always welcome if concerns people have for the industry, whether it's carpet and upholstery cleaning or a disaster restoration, they can send them in. Well, please stay on the line and join us at the end for the roundtable, if you would, Jeff. Will do. Prospect, Maine. It was just like any other Tuesday. On March 13th, Brandy Bridges was installing some of the two dozen CFL compact fluorescent lamp bulbs she had purchased in an attempt to save money on her energy bill. One month later, though, Bridges is paying much more than she ever expected to. On that Tuesday, Bridges was installing one of the spiral-shaped light bulbs in her seven-year-old daughter's bedroom. Suddenly, the bulb plummeted to the floor, breaking on the shag carpet. Bridges, who was wary of the dangers of cleaning up a fluorescent bulb, called the Home Depot, where she purchased them. She was told that the bulbs had mercury in them and that she should not vacuum an area where the bulb had broken. Bridges was directed to call the poison control hotline. Poison Control directed her to the Maine Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the Department of Environmental Protection. Upon reaching the DEP the next day, the agency offered to send a specialist out to Bridges' house to test the air levels. The specialist arrived soon after the phone conversation and began testing the downstairs, where he found safe levels of mercury below the state's limit of 300 nanograms per cubic meter. In the daughter's bedroom, the levels remained well below the 300 mark, except for near the carpet where the bulb had broken. There, 
the mercury levels spiked to 1,939 nanograms per cubic meter. On a bag of toys that the bulb fragments had landed on, the levels of mercury were 556 nanograms per cubic meter. Bridges was told by the specialist not to clean up the bulb and mercury powder by herself. He recommended the Clean Harbors Environmental Services Branch in Hamden. Clean Harbors gave Bridges a lowball estimate of $2,000 based on what she described to clean up the room properly. The work entailed removing anything with levels greater than 300 nanograms per cubic meter, including the carpeting. One month later, Bridges' daughter's bedroom remained sealed off with plastic to avoid any dust blowing around and to keep the family's pets from going in and out of the room. Her daughter Shaylee has to sleep downstairs in a house full that already consists of Bridges, her fiancé, her 70-year-old 71-year-old mother and her handicapped brother. Today, Bridges is gathering finances to pay the $2,000 bill for the cleaning herself. That won't cover the cost for new carpeting and other items that need to be replaced. Her insurance company said it wouldn't cover the costs because mercury is considered a pollutant like oil. One month later, Bridges is still searching for answers. She's contacted staff members from the offices of U.S. Senators Susan Collins and Olympia Snow of Maine to tell them about her situation, but has not received a response. She has talked with representatives from the CDC and DEP and spent roughly two to three hours a day over the past several weeks talking on the phone and in person and contacting local papers to get the word out on what she believes are dangerous light bulbs. And she said she's wondering why the DEP publicly recanted the statement it made to an area newspaper in which DEP officials said it was safe to clean up the CFL bulbs using household materials. I'm really upset that they should change their story just because it doesn't fit into a good plan for these light bulbs, said Bridges. I'm trying my best to keep my family safe, and the state just keeps trying to cover it up. Officials have said that Bridges has little to worry about and she could easily clean up the bulbs by hand. State toxicologist Andrew Smith said it would be unlikely that a person could contract mercury poisoning from the levels of mercury found in Bridges' daughter's room. In this situation, my understanding was this 1900 was the sign reading right at the spot of the floor where the bulb broke, said Smith. While 1900 was certainly considered an elevated reading of mercury vapor, it was very localized and I would not expect it to result in any sign of mercury exposure. Smith said mercury is only dangerous with long-term exposure, and in this case, the person would have to stay right on the spot of the reading of 1900, or there would have to be elevated levels of mercury vapor in the breathing zone about three feet above the spill. Mercury also dissipates over time. The air in the bedroom at the three-foot level measured between 31 and 49 nanograms per cubic meter of mercury, depending on the location. Smith said a CFL light bulb breaking is not in the same category as when a mercury thermometer breaks. A typical fluorescent bulb has between 1 and 25 milligrams of mercury, with the majority of smaller ones, the size of the bulb that Bridges broke, having about 5 milligrams of mercury. This is about the amount of ink on the tip of a pen. A typical mercury thermometer has between 500 and 3,000 milligrams of mercury, depending on its size. A mercury thermostat has even more. Often you'll get high levels in the breathing zone area, said Smith, about a broken thermometer, high hundreds if not thousands. Smith said Bridges' call was the first of its kind he's ever received. He's received plenty of calls about broken mercury thermometers, old barometers that had broken, even a very old Civil War mirror that had a mercury coating on the back. Many of these 
these situations had enough mercury to result in fairly elevated levels in the home, and some care was needed for each situation. But Bridges' problem is a whole different ballpark, said Smith. Scott Calger, Director of Outreach and Communications for the DEP, said... The DEP's website, www.maine.gov DEP, has guidelines for cleaning up a broken fluorescent bulb. Calger said it is important to ventilate the area by opening windows and not to vacuum the area of the broken bulb, which may spread the mercury. While wearing appropriate safety gloves, glasses, coveralls, or old clothing and a mask, a person can remove the glass pieces and put them in a closed container. The dust can be cleaned up using either two pieces of stiff paper, a disposal broom and dustpan, or a commercial mercury spill kit. Afterward, the area should be padded with sticky side of tape according to the DEP website. Cowder said all the items used in the cleaning up of the spill should be treated as universal waste or a common household hazardous waste that can be disposed of without hiring professionals. He said that almost every town has a program for recycling or removing universal waste, which includes computers, electronic devices, and fluorescent bulbs at the transfer station. We encourage people not to panic if they break a light bulb, said Calger. Calger said the instructions on the website are the same for if a mercury thermometer breaks. If a person breaks anything bigger than a thermometer, for example, a thermostat, Calger recommends calling a professional to clean up the spill. The DEP spokesman said, It isn't necessary to hire professionals at all for a light bulb. The specialist who responded to Bridges' broken bulb was trained to respond to chemical spills and to clean up such spills to appropriate standards. As for the dangers of CFL bulbs, Calger said they are more help than hindrance. For every CFL bulb a person uses, he or she is preventing mercury emissions and using less energy, said Calger. But it's still important to educate people that these bulbs do contain a small amount of mercury. We're doing our part, and I think using fluorescent bulbs helps reduce the overall mercury burden on the environment, so people shouldn't be afraid of using them by any means, he said. They should be proud to burn those bulbs as a way of lowering our entire mercury burden. To Bridges, the DEP suggestions for cleaning her rugs seem ridiculous. I don't think it's possible to safely clean mercury out of a shag rug with duct tape and paper. I believe their first notion to have it cleaned professionally was correct. They told me to do it this way. Why would they change their stories when the papers got a hold of it? Maine's Public Utilities Commission is rigorously promoting the use of CFL bulbs as a replacement to incandescent bulbs through government incentives for both businesses and household consumers. Bridges still isn't convinced. She's worried about her daughter staying in the same house for the next 11 years, potentially having long-term exposure to mercury. She's worried about the rest of her family's health, and she's worried about the state downplaying the threat of mercury and not letting people know the dangers coming from the bulb and telling everyone to clean it up themselves. I think they are putting people's safety and health at risk because they know what the financial repercussions are going to be for the consumer. For more information on cleaning up a broken CFL, go to www maine.gov slash DEP. IAQ Radio would like to thank the Ellsworth American Maine, Thursday, April 12, 2007, and author Nick Gosling for that article. Enough on that. $2,000 to clean up mercury. What do you think? We have some internet... Bill's got some comments of people who commented on the internet on this story. Well, I, I found one that I thought was pretty interesting. It said, it's opening up a whole new world of torts, and lawyers have to be going nuts with joy. And I think that that's probably true. Uh, wouldn't you think so? I think so. 
And uh, someone asked the question, what kind of a moron spends $2,000 on janitorial services to vacuum the carpet in one room? Spend it on a trip to Disneyland while the dust is settling. So we, we found a couple that were, uh, I guess, a little bit farther of from being politically correct than we yeah, want to go on this A little bit show. edgier. But in any event, let's bring on our guests for back for the round table and see if anyone has questions for anyone. Joe, are you there? I am back, yes. I have a question for Cliff. Where did you find that article? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what. Just do a web search, uh, Broken, CFL, and Maine, and you'll find a lot of it. It, I just couldn't. I just couldn't believe it when I saw it. Just came out recently, I guess. Huh? Yeah, yesterday. Uh, Megan, are you going to do a follow up on that, or, or Jeff? <laughs> I think that might be a little bit out of our our reach, but um, it's it's definitely the same type of problem we keep hearing. Just folks who need to learn more about these problems, uh, the consumers need to learn more about how to handle them. I think it's interesting that a consumer can get a hold of a product like that and drop it and cause this problem. Maybe if Cliff would send me the link to that article. I personally have not done searches like he just described. I don't know what some of those words are. Okay. <laughs> Being no. a carpet upholstery cleaner, but we could sure look into it. You, it's pretty easy. You can do a search on Google if you take broken CFL, that's compact fluorescent light, and okay. the, the state of Maine. You'll pop it up and you'll get more than... You, you ever thought that you would get it's it's just incredible yeah i think uh, one more comment on uh someone said uh, why not just go to disneyland what dust settles well consumers don't know what to do sometimes you know you get an estimate for two thousand dollars you think it's what you should do i'd say that it's sad that the consumers don't know where to go and that's why the associations out there and the, and the better cleaners can help educate them it sounds to me jeff like it might be an area of concern, though, for your people that do carpet cleaning. Uh, you know, they they may be running into a possible, uh, I know it may be far-fetched, but there's a possible liability if they go in and maybe they break one of these lights or, you know, while they're doing some cleaning or they're cleaning an area that uh, has had these lights broken in it and uh, they don't use uh, high-efficiency vacuums or something like that and get blamed for spreading it around the home, that would be a, a tough thing for a cleaner to have to deal with. Yeah, that's one of the trials of business. You never know what problem may come up on the job. Right? You just have to do the best you can. And I don't know how many of these light bulbs are out there, but hopefully this isn't a big a big uh, problem, but maybe it is. Well, it's, it's probably not huge right now, but it's getting bigger and bigger. When we discuss the green building uh, trend, that is one of the ways people are moving toward greener living is by using these types of light bulbs, which use less electricity. So I, I think it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue as time goes on. I'm glad Cliff pulled up the article because it shows both the, you know, the upside of using green products and then the downside of or the possible downsides of using those products. You know, as far yeah, as probably the, the same. As far as the number of, as, as, far, as far as the number of bulbs sold, there's actually a picture uh, of Brandy Bridges, the woman holding up a uh, a newspaper, and it says one million CFLs and counting. So these are very very popular. Uh, they do save on energy. 
Uh, but in her case, you know, she was trying to save on her energy bill, and she ends up spending $2,000 and then has to buy uh, and, and do some more redecorating in the house. It's going to take her a long time to recapture those energy savings. <laughs> actually, sure. Australia, I, I heard that Australia is actually uh, has some legislation pending right now to, to slowly phase out incandescent and halogen light bulbs in favor of compact fluorescent light bulbs. I myself have several compact fluorescent light bulbs in my home, and fortunately I didn't break them. Well, one of the other things that's very interesting is a lot of computer devices, et cetera, use LED lights, and apparently they are even more dangerous and, and more hazardous. Actually, the Bureau of Remediation and Waste Management from the state of Maine does have some very reasonable guidelines in terms of how to do it talks about ventilating the area, turning down the temperature, wearing appropriate personal protective equipment, um, you know, collecting the larger uh, pieces with, you know, just by sweeping, putting everything together in an airtight bag, uh, how to market. It's considered universal waste. And then a really good idea of using the sticky side of duct tape or packing or masking tape uh, to wipe the area and then finally cleaning it with a damp cloth. So it's unfortunate that uh, Mrs. Bridges didn't get this information sooner. Sounds like good information for Jeff's readers. Absolutely. Okay, Jeff. No further comments? Then we can sign off, and this is a, uh, another... I just want to thank both uh, Jeff and Megan for coming on this week. We really appreciate having you on and uh, look forward to bringing you back. And also, Steve Sauer, don't want to forget Steve's uh, What's News segment. Thank you all for joining us this week on IAQ Radio. And Cliff, if you do the sign-off for me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it, Joe. Uh, I think Bill's got another word from the sponsors first. Just uh, another, another round of thanks for today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information, available at ieconnections.com, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, dry-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com, and the Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com, and of course, Microban Systems, the microbial management company, microbansystems.com. Thanks very much to everybody, and uh, we appreciate uh, having spent some time together. And we'll see you again next week. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to direct technical director Dietrich Weil, co-host Joe Hughes, uh, guest host Bill Wagon, and to cyber jockey Zach, Cl Zach Slotnick. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.